you would uh, stand with me and turn to Luke 11, please. We read in the first 13 verses of Luke 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is embedded into us. And lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, Which of you has a friend and will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, uh, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Maybe see it. Good morning. I'd like to lead with some quotes from respected church leaders and writers. When the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at an end. That was R.A. Torrey. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That was Jesus Christ. The Cinderella of the church today is the prayer meeting. This handmaid of the Lord is unloved and unwooed, Because she is not dripping with the pearls of intellectualism, nor glamorous with the silks of philosophy, neither is she enchanting with the tiara of psychology. It was Leonard Ravenhill. And then this from Corey Tenboom. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And then this uh, little more lengthy passage from Mark. Most of it, the words of Jesus. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. 
Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them sleeping again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came to them the third time, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And another quote. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Oswald Chambers. Acts 6, verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That was the 12. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Paul the Apostle. So, I think you can see that uh, at the beginning and down through the years, there has been a, a common theme in regard to our struggle with prayer. So as we prepare to look into this text and beyond, uh, please join me in prayer. Father, I acknowledge before you this, the applicability of much of what I just read to my own life to our lives together here in this church I ask for myself and for all these beloved brothers and sisters that you would help us to listen to your words receive them as your words and allow your Holy Spirit to uh, press them home to us and for your sake we ask it. Amen. All right, this is the last uh, sermon in a series on anchored living, and the subject is prayer. And the text is Luke 11, it was just read. 
looking at the first verse. How it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. I want us to just consider right here uh, what all went into this as much as we are able. Not, not, maybe not so much very, very precisely in terms of schedule and everything, but some things happened before this. First of all, they're aware that John the Baptist had disciples and, in fact, some of the uh, Jesus' disciples had been John's disciples. So they were quite familiar with that John taught his disciples to pray. And in writings outside the scriptures, uh, uh, Jewish writings, there was acknowledgement that that the, the prayer that John entered into and that he taught his disciples was much more intense and spiritual than the common prayers of the Pharisees in that day. And of course, Jesus had a few things to say about the typical uh, prayers of Pharisees. So they already had this contrast. This was a fact of their lives. They would see this occasionally, the contrast. But it was interesting to me as I thought about this that Realize that this is, uh, in terms of chapters, this is halfway through, roughly, uh, Luke's gospel. So a lot of time had already happened. And in fact, this model prayer, uh, as we could call it, is, is the second time. It's, it, this is a kind of a reprise because at first it was in uh, within the Sermon on the Mount that happened early, earlier in Jesus' ministry. And in fact, uh, it's an interesting thing that happened in, in terms of the manuscript because of these two accounts. Uh, over time, little incremental changes were happening in this text, Luke's, trying to add to some of the things that were basically pulling out what was in, uh, in greater detail, more text in Matthew's account, and it got put into this text. So that, that can be observed. And of course, it's not our point to, to get into why that happens and what that means, but just, just noting that that happens. And what that does, it, it, it tends to point back to that this text was indeed, it started out to be shorter. Uh, so, and the reason I want to even bring that up is, is not just because there's a differences in the, in the text, but in fact, Jesus' purpose here, it, it even in a greater way, points to the fact that this is not a, a prayer to be memorized and, you know, and handled that way. They've just asked him to teach them to pray. And we're going to look, just kind of skim, and just want to quickly go through. I've got one sheet of paper here, large print. 
just to, just to go through what has happened up to this point. Because what I notice is that Luke's gospel, it's one reason it drew me to it, is that Luke's gospel has more instances of prayer and talking a lot about Jesus praying than any of the other gospels. <clears throat> so I want to just go through this. <clears throat> so uh, starting, uh, not, be, not going to be mentioning every verse, just a general idea. In Luke 3, Jesus had been baptized <clears throat> and was praying, uh, unique to Luke's gospel, that it was as he was praying that the Holy Spirit descended on him and the voice came from heaven. This is my son. In Luke 5, great crowds gather to hear him and to be healed, but immediately following Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In Luke 6, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. <clears throat> now Jesus, later in Luke 9, gave those twelve the power to heal and cast out demons, and sent them out preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And then when they returned, excited, sharing with Jesus all that they had done, Jesus then took them and withdrew. Now it doesn't say at that point to pray, but that was, that's been his habit. Well, it didn't happen, <clears throat> as it often didn't happen, because the crowds would crowd in. They would basically follow and chase him. So when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and Jesus welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, cured those who had need of healing, and then he said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. So you know what's ensued then is after a prayer of thanksgiving, Jesus, 5,000 men, and many women and children besides, were fed and 12 baskets of leftovers. <clears throat> we find in Matthew's gospel, Chapter 14, uh, not recorded here in Luke, that right then, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat with the disciples, they were already going across this, the, the lake. Well, it was a long way from land. They were out in the middle and a and, uh, windstorm. They were beaten by the waves, so the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus went up on the mountain after this long day, an extended day, and was there, fourth watch, that's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that's when he came walking in the water. Peter got out of the boat for a short time. So, back to Luke 9. Later it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. About eight days later, he took with him Peter and John and James 
and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a crowd met him. A man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And then in Mark's gospel, in that account of, of this instance here, that when they entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some uh, texts would also say prayer and fasting, but the main point here is this was something that cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And yet, there's not even indication that Jesus prayed at that point. Things, he was brought to him, he cast the, the demon out. So, what kind of prayer was he talking about? Maybe this continual pattern of prayer. So, just a a brief skim, mostly through Luke, bringing it up to this point. So, the disciples have seen all of this. They've seen Jesus' pattern of getting alone with God for hours, sometimes all night. The greater the need, the longer the prayer, it seemed. So now the disciples come to him and ask Jesus to teach them to pray. I I don't know about you, but I I wondered several things about this. I wondered what took them so long to ask. Did did anybody else think of that? I mean, they're well through Jesus' time of ministry, and they're just now asking him, teach him to pray. I don't know if they're just intimidated or uh, distracted. So they've asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And that is what he's doing here. He's not teaching them to quote or chant a prayer. He's teaching them to pray. That's the point of the rest of this passage. So what is prayer? There's, there could be a few answers. Some are just plain. It's talking with God. It has an element of petition, usually. Uh, consider this. One, one thing that surprised me, especially you know, being familiar with some passages in John that are very intense of prayer. Think of John 17. The word for prayer, that's, it's, it's a specific word in the Greek language for prayer to, you know, it's, it's sometimes even used for the gods, you know, in other in the pagan cultures. But that's the word used here when talking about praying to God. It's not in John's gospel at all, not once. And yet numerous times, it's, Jesus is praying. He just chooses not to use it. I, I bring this up because I think it does contribute to what is prayer, the answer to this question. 
it seems that the Holy Spirit who, who moved upon these writers is making at least a small point here. Let's not get locked in to, to uh, an attitude, a thought thinking of prayer that, that makes it uh, sp- special handling. We're going to find out in this text that G- what Jesus teaches here is definitely just the opposite. He doesn't teach a, a, a familiarity that breeds contempt. It's a holy God and we're to hallow his name. But what's, not, what, what's put forward here is not a, a dressed up, plasticky kind of communication with God. He's teaching them to pray and he's teaching them in such a way as some have likened prayer to like spiritual breathing, that the, the life in Christ that he has given us, that, that it's, it's like the oxygen for the soul. If that be the case, we can easily see the connection to what happens if one does not pray, if it's roughly equivalent to, the, to breathing. How, how do, what happens to our health when we stop breathing? It's part of our life in Christ. It's part of our abiding in Christ. So with those thoughts, we want to just then begin that, uh, going the rest of the way through the text. In verse 2, so Jesus says to them, when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray. Do you recall in Matthew's uh, chapter 5 and 6 uh, where uh, Jesus is in, on the Sermon on the Mount, He's going through a series of things. When you pray, when you fast, when you give alms. It's expected that this was a normal part of your life as a believer, as part of the church. So Jesus says the same thing here. When you pray, say, Father, some texts say, Our Father, uh, the one that's just shortened and this is what I'm I'm gonna kinda train myself to to just uh, use the ESV text for for the rest of the way. He said then when you pray say Father hallowed be your name. Father from the very beginning of Jesus' teaching is to pray. He's pointing to relationship. I want us to just keep reminding us here that this is Jesus teaching us to pray. Not teaching us what words to choose, but teaching us to pray. Father. It speaks of relationship. And then hallowed be your name. So it's about God, our Father. We're addressing Him, and it's a one-to-one. He's our Father, and we're addressing Him that way. How would be your name? He's also 
He's not only our, our Father because He's adopted us in Christ, but He's a great and holy God. And His name is to be hallowed. So it's about Him. And it's about His honor and glory. Which speaks then of our purpose for being here. To glorify Him and exalt His name. And when we see Him as exalted, seated on His throne, His train filling the temple, as Isaiah spoke of, then we see ourselves as we really are. And we want to be changed and purified. And like Isaiah, we should then say, Here am I, send me. The next words are, Your kingdom come. Speaking of God's purpose. So first, is, we speak, the first thing is God himself. That's our focus. And then his glory and honor. And then his purpose. So those are the first three things, all focused on God, who he is, and, and his purpose. And connected to that, then, is our purpose for being here. Do we want to serve the purpose of God in our generation? It speaks of, of David, who did this. So within, the, within that thought of your kingdom come will be included as we desire to serve him is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and that's you know first by us being determined to follow hard after him and do his will be available to him to accomplish his purpose on earth and then verse 3 give us each day our daily bread so now we're looking at it's dressing our, our, our physical need. So we have a, a physical dependence on God. But this is a very simple thing. Note that there's, there's not a, a laundry list of physical needs. Just an acknowledgement that we have daily needs. And we look to him to supply them. Remember in Matthew 6.33, the familiar verse but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I, I hear that sense here is that first we're, all, we're looking at God and his purpose and yes, we're looking and we're, we're asking give us this day our daily bread but it's done in such a way that it, it, it's, a, it's a foregone conclusion really if we know God our Father he's already promised to do this we seek his kingdom first, he'll take care of these other things. And yet, it's good to ask. As we'll find out in this text, it's a, it's a strong exhortation. Ask. But this keeps us mindful, too, as we, is, when this is part of our thinking for prayer, as Jesus is teaching us here. It keeps us mindful of our physical dependence. Intention is not to, is to, is to get us sidetracked thinking about what's for What's for lunch? That's certainly not Jesus' intention here. It's to, it's just a simple reminder. We are dependent upon him. And he has promised to provide. And then in verse 4, forgive us our sins. What a much greater provision that is. And he has met that need. 
that only he could meet. So we not only have physical dependence on God, but spiritual dependence on God. So with physical dependence, we're resting in his promise of daily provision. But we're spiritually dependent on God, and we need to rest in his promise of eternal provision, the very heart of the gospel. So this is a reminder that, one, we have need of forgiveness of sins. And we continue to, because we continue. We, we don't intend to, but we do end up stumbling sometimes. And so we forgive. We ask him to forgive us our sins. And, it's, and we continue to rest in his promise to do so. Based on our trust in Christ. But it's forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, or who has sinned against us. And this, this points out, the change in words here, does point out that there's a sense in which if someone sins against us, there is, there's an indebtedness. It's just kind of a naturally occurring thing in our, in our humanness. But we're called here. Jesus has taught this elsewhere. And, and even very pointedly, when, Jesus, when, when Peter came to him one time saying, how many times must, must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Do I have to, Lord? How many times do I have to? And, of course, Jesus uh, used a, a, an idiom in the, in the language of their day that meant it wasn't just, okay, I'm 400, you know, <laughs> how many times, and I'm going to carefully keep track so I can stop forgiving. No, it's infinite. So our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins is, is, is connected in the sense of, of every day. If, if we withhold forgiveness for somebody, bad things are happening on the inside. We will be tortured. There will be uh, God as a faithful father will not put up with that. And fellowship with God, which is the very point of this prayer, ceases when we withhold forgiveness. So this is an acknowledgement. Again, this is Jesus teaching them to pray. And so in teaching them to pray, teaching these principles to be always mindful of as we pray. Do not withhold forgiveness. Couple specific verses that that, that uh, bring this home in Matthew five twenty three and twenty four. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And later in that chapter, verse forty four, he says, "But I say to you, love your enemies." And pray for those who persecute you. So both with uh, your friends and people outside, we're to not hang on to offenses. We're to let them go. Because we have been forgiven. And then lead us not into temptation. 
This is a more, a more difficult one because that wording that we know from, from James 1, which wasn't too long back that we covered that very slowly. And so that was one thing driven home is that God does not tempt anyone. He is not tempted by sin, and he does not tempt anyone. So what does this mean, and lead us not into temptation? Why are we appealing to God to not lead us into temptation? Well, I, I don't claim to have great insight in this. But, but, but one thing that did uh, come to me that as I considered is that given what Jesus is trying to teach here is a spiritual alertness and service to God so that we're receiving and using his armor. Some examples here uh, of, of, the, of uh, the language of the scriptures. Remember when David was uh, stirred up to count the army? You have uh, an account in Kings and an account of that in Chronicles. One says, Satan stirred up David to count. And the other says, the Lord stirred up David to count. Remember that Satan is always under the control, the useful control of God. Our sovereign God accomplish what he wills, however he wills. And nobody can challenge that. This is God. So, Certainly, God himself will not. But if we get ourselves in a position in terms of our off the track, lay down our weapons, we will be in trouble because Satan does not lay down his weapons. So would we not want the Lord to lead us Maybe use different words. So lead us in green pastures. There will be times when we need to fight battles. But we need to depend on him. Because if you, if, you look, if you look back from this point, what you see is dependency. Dependency. We are dependent on him. We need to continue to depend on him. Depend on what he has done for us in Christ. And what he's provided in Christ. And so, in regard to temptation, which speaks of spiritual battle, take on the armor. Some of the pieces of the armor not intended to come off, some of his clothing. Keep it on. Keep on the belt of truth. Keep on the breastplate of righteousness. So on. So this, this text here makes us aware that we could be led into temptation from our own carelessness. So be alert. And as Jesus said in some of the texts we've already read today, watch and pray, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some translations will also add as part of that, but deliver us from the evil one. I do want to point out that some will say deliver us from evil. Really the the, the text there is the evil one. It's, it, it helps if we look at this to remember 
If you remember that, that's what this text actually says when it does appear in both Matthew and Luke here. It's pointing to the reality of spiritual battle. Flaming arrows are coming your way. You need to be suited and you need to be holding your shield of faith. And we have his promise in 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We need not fear, but we need to be alert. Now, it's interesting here that what, what happens after Jesus teaches these, these few lines, kind of like a, a model or sample prayer, he continues to teach them how to pray. Now he moves away from just words that could be prayed to instruction by way of, uh, of example situations, almost parables, if you will. So in verse 5, he says to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will arise and give him whatever he needs. Uh, I especially appreciate the NIV. Uh, occasionally they do, do a good job of landing on a, on a term. They use two words, and it really pulls together the meaning of this, of, of this word in Greek. And the phrase is shameless audacity. That's really what it means. That, that hits the nail on the head. Jesus is teaching his disciples to have, it, not directly, but indirectly, but shameless audacity. Now, does that seem odd to, have, to think about having shameless audacity before God in petitioning him? It certainly does if, that's, if, if our attitude is <laughs> haughty. Jesus has just taught them these precious and carefully instructive words in the previous verses. He's not teaching haughtiness. But he is, because of what's preceded this and because of what follows it, he's really highlighting we have a God that can answer every prayer. He can do anything. Now, obviously, there's some things he can't do. He can't sin. But in terms of our petitioning, every good gift comes from him. If we, are, if we recognize something that, that is potentially good, pray it. Isn't that what he's following it up with in verse 9? And I tell you, ask. He's just given this example to, to, to really push the point. So ask. We're, we're, ta- we're, we're petitioning a great God 
who knows no bounds in his ability to answer and provide more than we can ask or think. So, shameless audacity in regard to the asking. One term that I remember from years back somebody used was ask largely. Don't ask small things. Don't be small in our attitude of prayer to God. So it's very challenging to me. I, I, I was recognizing going through this that just different ways in which I'd become dull, lazy in prayer. I pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, do similar work in some of you that are, that are hearing his word. The emphasis is the promise of God. Ask. Call to him and he will answer. Jeremiah 33. Call to me and I will answer and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. It's going to be more than what you can even think. In James 4, some of verse 2 and 3, you do not have because you do not ask. And then there's also the, you ask and do not receive because... You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So we're not to ask shamelessly, with shameless audacity, for ourselves, but it's for Him. How would be your name, your kingdom come? Well, we're pursuing and asking for His kingdom to come in specific ways, specific things. He takes care of our daily bread, He's guarding us as we are putting Him first. Some precious promises in his word about this. In Ezekiel 36, verse 37, Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock. Let me read that again. Listen to this carefully. Thus says the Lord God, This also will I let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. If this request is a good request, and it's the Lord's will, he's actually saying in his word, I'm going to let them ask me for this. Now, now why would he say that? He's trying to stir them up. So ask me. I'm ready to do it. Does this also imply, rightly, that God's not doing it until they ask? This is part of the teaching of Scripture. There are very, very many things that God will not do until we ask Him. And He's stirring us up to ask. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. If we are, if we are taking this teaching on prayer to heart, and are putting him first, hallowing his name, desiring for his name to be, to be revered and, and glory to be spread and for him to be exalted in the earth around us. And that his kingdom would come, that, that the power and presence of his kingdom would spread. Then when we are asking along those lines, everyone who asks receives. 
And then in verse 11, another teaching on prayer. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want us to note that in this segment where Jesus is teaching on prayer, what did he begin with? First word, Father. It's all about relationship. That's where it starts. Now, and where does it finish? Father. Relationship. He stirred us up in the middle here to sh- with shameless audacity. Ask him for things that we believe is his will. That we, we read and we find out what he wants to do. And he's waiting for us to ask. But, but still... Think not just in terms of the mechanics of asking and what to ask for, but we're asking the Father. This is who we're asking. Don't forget, we're going to ask of our Father, a good heavenly Father. Think of Hebrews 12 that speaks of how you know, earthly fathers, we, we do the best we can, and we acknowledge in saying that that we don't get it right all the time. Sometimes we ourselves get in the way. Well, not so with our Heavenly Father. Perfect Heavenly Father. And He gives good gifts. And He's the only source of good gifts. Every good gift is from Him. And knowing that we love to give good gifts to our children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father get good gifts? And in Luke's account here, not just give good gifts, but give the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit not the best gift? Can you think of another? And I want to remind us here of of the kind of giving of the Holy Spirit that the Lord has in mind. Acts 1 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Then there's an account in Acts Four. That is uh, just uh, blesses me and challenges me every time that I think about this and read it. This is uh, beginning in verse 24. If you want to follow along, it'll be fine. It's 24 through 31. The setting is the Peter and John have once again been called before the. The authorities, they uh, mistreat them, but they let them go. They came back to their companions in verse 24. So then when they heard that, when they heard the report, what the priests and elders had said to them, 
telling them to stop preaching in Jesus' name. Stop doing miracles in Jesus' name. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. Love that. Who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. They are pawns in the hand of God. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Ask and you shall receive. And this was a uh, shameless audacity right in the face of the rulers saying, stop. And they, with one voice and heart, prayed. Said, Lord, they are under your sovereign control. And you have given us your spirit that we may speak boldly. We have received your power to be your witnesses. So now, take note of their threats and give us more. That's what they got. God is faithful and we need to ask. This was asking also according to their need, right? Right then. Let's not just take, lift out something and say, let's ask this one. This would be neat. What is our need? Let us ask for what the Lord would would show us and, and that we need for his kingdom's sake and for his glory. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father. So, at this point, I want to just consider how this uh, this message on prayer and, and being and, and the, the uh, look, looking at the five anchors over this month of. Uh, anchored living. Uh, Freedom, pattern, power, praise, and now prayer. So those are through the previous four weeks of this month. What I'd like to do is especially focusing on pattern and, and just go through some of the main points from Steve's message on pattern. This would be three weeks ago. And just see how how prayer and this, this Jesus teaching on prayer, but also with respect to what went into this prayer, recalling things that I read from from uh, the earlier chapters.
how many times Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And there's certain ones of these I want to just focus on and kind of work through uh, in terms of helping us consider the application in the life of Jesus. He's our perfect example. When we see Jesus, though he was a son, learned obedience by the things he suffered, we see that the Son of God spent time alone with God, recognized his need for it, could it possibly be that we don't need that? So, the pattern. The pattern of prayer in the life of Jesus is unmistakable. And his teaching of how to pray also teaches us to love and honor and trust him. Further, we are drawn into dependency on the Holy Spirit's power for living. We're encouraged to pray for that. Our praying then becomes the channel through which other patterns of godly living will be established and flourish from the root to fruit. So in the sermon three weeks ago on the pattern of godly living, there were four points from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Hopefully you can remember the, the terms that Steve put them forward. Godly influence, godly desire, or desire to live godly, Godly discernment and godly pattern. Considering godly influence, the influence of Jesus' life of prayer and the disciples' growing recognition that his time alone with God in prayer was the continual enabling source of his power. This is what led to their request to be taught to pray. It finally got through that, hey, there's a connection here. Jesus was always ready, right? He was always ready to do the will of God. He knew what the will of God was and was prepared to carry it out and to sacrifice to do so. Again and again he sacrificed. And they were starting to learn. That's what he was calling them to. Uh, Something I didn't bring out specifically before, but before this instance in, in Luke 11, Jesus has both sent out the 12, giving them power and authority, and later a larger group, another 70. Before this time, in Luke 11. So, they're being encouraged to preach, heal, Cast out demons. But they've yet to earn a life of prayer. And so they're seeing a discrepancy. They're seeing the the lack of their own resources being able to handle this. Jesus has allowed this to happen. And it's what led to their request to be taught to pray. The Lord was continually expressing his desire and commitment to do God's will. That was the purpose for which he came. He's a perfect example of desiring to live godly. Of course, (laughs) the Son of God certainly will live godly, and he did. He was our perfect sacrifice. And yet he lived a life by example. 
as if he were not, in other words. And some of these verses are from Hebrews 10, and hopefully this will kind of prepare us to, <laughs> to get back into the flow of Hebrews starting next week. But in Hebrews 10, quoting the Old Testament, but it's Jesus, it's Jesus saying this, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. But his intense desire, seeking to know and do all the will of God, is especially seen in the way he devoted himself to prayer. And we've seen that today. And in his uh, careful wisdom in teaching them to pray in such a way that, that teaches principles and calls them to relationship and calls them to think outside their smallness thoughts. He's teaching them all this. Jesus himself, this is some verses from Hebrews 5, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience for the things which he suffered. I don't know about you, but this challenges me every time. Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears. Maybe that's why he got into desolate places. Climbed up into a mountain far away. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. And Paul the Apostle echoes this for us in 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So then, what should we do when we suffer for the name of Christ? Psalm 62.8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Do you ever pour out your heart to God? Like we see Jesus living by example. He who knew no sin. He who knew men's hearts. And so on. Lived this by example. Do you ever pour out your heart to God like that? In prayer? with loud cries and tears. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. The question I'm asking is it's a challenging question. It's intentional. I want to share with you that I've already been asking myself this this week. Stark terms. It was stark to me as I considered them. I'm going to share a personal example from my life this week. Uh, it's not going to be in a, in, a, in a great amount of detail. Perhaps, perhaps later it, it can be in greater detail. But uh, it's been a tough, uh, 
tough week, tough month, tough year, tough several years. Many different ways. And and I, I think as I considered what the disciples must have must have gone into in their intense training, being with them all the time, and still took them, I don't know, a year, year and a half, two, not sure the timing, but a while for them to get to this point where they said, teach us to pray. We're missing it, in other words. We see what it means in your life, and we see what you're doing. Teach us. We don't know how to do that. closest they could get was just referencing John the Baptist who had taught them to pray. In other words, they didn't see very far. They didn't see clearly. They didn't see forever. They didn't know what they were asking probably. The Lord knew. And he's patient with them. And he's been patient with me. But I, I shared some of this feeling what I imagined they were. Just feeling like I'm I'm behind. I don't get it. I thought I did once, but I need to be taught. And I was surprised at the the uh, the hump that it was for me. I made a point of I tried to do most of my uh, study and time with the Lord this week out in this, some of you know, there's the old RV, call it. It just sits there. <laughs> but but it, it's close enough to the garage to plug in, and we use the air conditioning. <laughs> and uh, so I can uh, get by. And it's somewhat separate. But I found myself struggling to get over a hump, to get vocal because I'm seeing this, I'm thinking, you know, I'm not just looking to just do some trick, okay, you know, I'm going to shout out loud and then everything's going to be great and I'm going to ask for something and I'm going to get it. And you know, I wasn't thinking in those terms. I'm just thinking in terms of this ought not to be a, a barrier. I ought to be able to do this. My Lord and Master lived this way. He saw the need for it. We find in the Word that if they mistreat the Master, they'll mistreat you. If the Master is going to have this kind of uh, load, Scripture comes to mind, just let me... uh, Turn to it. If I can find it here. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary, discouraging your souls. Look, I'm confessing. I've become weary and discouraging my soul. And this is the answer. The word of God. Consider him. 
So as I've considered him this week, and in still doing, seeing a contrast, I begin to cry out. Little by little. In the middle of the night, when there's neighbors close enough, you don't. Yeah, you know, I wasn't in the mountain. I wasn't in the desert. I couldn't couldn't handle that one. Couldn't get there. But the Lord helped me. He was gracious. Like I said, I, I wasn't asking for big things. I was just asking for help to obey him and follow him. And he did. That's my testimony. The Lord gave aid. He gave grace. That's what I asked for. And he met me. And I want to give him thanks and praise and acknowledge it. My own need and his supply. He'll do the same for you. For me, this may have been a small step forward, but it was an important step. I testified to it being a tremendous encouragement to me. Encouragement is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. I can't even recall whether I specifically asked that. But I recognized later that what he did in my life was encouragement. A ministry of the Holy Spirit. I know he wants to encourage us to pour our hearts out to him in prayer. That's the whole thrust of this passage in Luke 11. Jesus, our forerunner, shows us the way. Though he was a son, yet he poured his heart out to God. He will always be our best example. Prayer life of Jesus is an incredible example when it comes to to godly discernment. I want to just focus us on a particular event. We read it before where uh, before Jesus chose his 12 apostles. He spent the whole night alone with God in prayer, seeking discernment from his heavenly Father. And I want to focus on one particular thing. I mean, there's 12 apostles, so I'm not going to uh, suppose much about those that I don't know about, but there are one or two in particular. I'm thinking Peter and Judas. I want us to look at Judas. And it's just got to think with me here. Jesus spends a whole night alone with God in prayer, seeking discernment from his heavenly Father. What would his Father have him? And this is from the message three weeks ago. What would his Father have him think? or not think, say or not say, do or not do. He's seeking the Lord's wisdom in all this. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been to choose Judas? He knew 
He knew then. John chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus speaking to his disciples. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. How could Jesus have gathered his disciples around him that next morning after he came down from the mountain prayer and chosen Judas Iscariot? Knowing. Because he knew the word of God. Jesus had become wise in the way of salvation. He was the way of salvation. He was becoming wise in God's chosen path according to his word. You see this all throughout the life of Jesus, how he kept fulfilling scriptures. But we're looking at one particular fulfillment. Before Judas could betray him, he had to be chosen. Psalm 41.9 is the prophecy of this. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The Father must have revealed this to Christ as he sought him for his will. Because Jesus had, only, had come only to do the will of the Father. That was his testimony. He was willing to endure the cross, despising the shame. He was also willing to be betrayed by one of his own disciples that he knowingly chose. Consider that the story of Judas Iscariot as a disciple of Jesus, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, began and was dependent on Jesus diligently and energetically and sacrificially seeking the Father for wisdom and discernment. Without knowledge of the Father's will, how could Jesus obey it? That had to be its own kind of suffering. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. A third point from 2 Timothy 3, godly pattern. Jesus demonstrated his commitment to a godly pattern of obedience from his earliest years. From Luke chapter 2, we know that when he was 12 years old, he submitted to his parents' decisions, even as he himself had come to understand who he was and, and the purpose for which he had come and was desired to be about his father's work. He submitted himself to his parents. Waited for the father's timing. Jesus continues this godly pattern of submission to his heavenly father's wisdom and will and purpose throughout his life. All the way to the cross, yes, but all the way to the final time of celebrating the Passover with his disciples before the cross, recorded in John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he should depart from the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He then proceeded to wash his disciples' feet. That included Judas Iscariot. 
It was later during the supper that Judas left to betray Jesus. Peter objected at first, remember? You should never wash my feet. Apparently Judas Iscariot didn't object. After the Passover supper, Jesus spoke many words of encouragement and hope. After Judas left. And then he prayed for them. Thinking of John 17. He prayed for them and us who would believe because of their gospel witness. Would follow generation after generation. That's why we're here. That's how we got here. Because God is faithful. John 17, 12. Jesus says, pray, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Our Lord has left us an example, a godly pattern of obedience that was ignited and fueled by the word of God and prayer. That's an example that we should walk in. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So, just a, a, a little more picking up uh, on the two weeks ago, power. There's the pattern, power, and praise leading up to prayer. If prayer is like breathing, then it is breathing by the power of the Holy Spirit, not our own. As Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he is teaching us how to walk in the Spirit when we pray. Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. As our example, Jesus remained dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit in everything. This is our example. This is his example to us. We have the same Spirit, the same power available. So, question. Could the difference then be our prayer life? Ephesians 1.19 talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's a power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's pretty potent. And that power is the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is taught in Luke 11. You seek, you ask God to give you the Holy Spirit. To fill you. Think of Acts 4. He had already the Holy Spirit had already been poured out. But they needed fresh infusion. And they asked, the Lord gave. Do we not need that? I want us to leave us with a some additional thoughts from some quotes from respected church leaders and writers. Purpose is to to challenge, but also but in the context of Jesus teaching on prayer and his promise 
to give good gifts when we ask. The challenge is for us to ask and to humbly come to the Lord ourselves, have an attitude of Him, each of us personally and perhaps together. Lord, teach us to pray. From Charles Spurgeon, he says, whether we like it or not, asking is the rule of the kingdom. Robert Murray McShane said, God will either give you what you ask or something far better. John Wesley says, perhaps a little hyperbole here, but God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Indeed, there is much that he doesn't do when we don't ask. Luke 11, 9, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus. And from F.B. Meyer, The greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. James 4, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Solomon in Proverbs 15.29 said, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. James 5.16 Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, the Holy Spirit from His Word and perhaps also from the mouths of wise brothers and sisters down through the years exhorts us to lay hold of Him and to ask. Start with asking Him to teach us to pray. And then as He teaches us to pray, ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek. Keep on seeking. So, join me in prayer, please. Father, I humbly ask you to take this word, your word, and plant it. Plant it deep within. cause roots to go downward sprouts to go upward may you get all the glory for the work that you do we ask it in Jesus name Amen now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.